Hello, I'm Father Mitch Packer. Welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Tonight, we will talk about political maneuvering, hostile court hearings, legal corruption, viral pandemics, riots, and the suppression of free speech. And we'll see how two great Catholic saints from about 500 years ago dealt with these obviously recurring problems. But before all that, we want to talk briefly with EWTN's Jack Williams about two big EWTN events coming up. Jack, what you got coming up for us? It's the biggest double feature of the season coming up this fall. Huh. So at the end of September, September 29th and 30th, for the first time ever, we're taking the EWTN Catholic Radio Conference on the road. Uh-huh. We usually have that every year here in Birmingham. Yes, we have we not been able to have it at all the last two years because of the pandemic. So we're taking it on the road to Phoenix, Arizona. So anybody, we, we gather together our affiliates from around the country. Uh, we have a little spiritual component. We have a little uh, formation, professional formation for them. Uh, professional workshops. We give them uh, access to our engineers and to uh, some of our affiliate relations staff. And we also welcome anybody who maybe doesn't have an AM or FM Catholic radio station in their area, but they think maybe the Lord might be speaking to their heart to get involved in something that would bring Catholic radio to their area. We invite those people to come to the radio conference as well and network with our affiliates, our current and existing affiliates, and, uh, and learn the things they need to learn to try to maybe make that happen. Uh, on Thursday, the 29th, we are gonna take them on a day-long pilgrimage to Our Lady of Solitude Monastery the Poor Claire Nuns in the desert, the Desert Nuns. And this place, Father, I don't know if you've been there or not, I but it, is, it rises up out of the middle of nothing out there in the desert, and it is spectacular. It's a beautiful church. They just opened about a year ago. The monastery was finally built and opened. The church is just spectacular. It's breathtaking. So we're going to have uh, a day of reflection uh, at the monastery. On Friday, we will have a keynote address from Father Spitzer, your confrere in the mm -hmm. Society of Jesus. Yep. And then we will have a day of um, professional development and inspiration. And then we'll have our annual awards dinner on Friday night. And then part two of the biggest doubleheader of the year, Saturday, October 1st, is the EWTN family celebration right there in Phoenix, Arizona, at the same location, at the same venue, where you'll be there. Yep. Father Spitzer will be there. Marcus Grodi will be there. My wife, Johnette, will be there. Yep. Uh, it's going to be a terrific. You can meet all of your people. I bet Brother Leo might even be there, hmm. possibly. But that's going to make it fun. It is going to yeah, make it he's fun. He's a good guy. But you can find out all the details at EWTNCRC.com. That CRC stands for Catholic Radio Conference. EWTNCRC.com. Go to the website, sign up today, and we'll see you in Phoenix. All right. Jack, thanks a lot for thanks, that Bob. info. And we'll be back in a couple of minutes with tonight's guest, so please stay with us.
Welcome back. Now, in 1929, almost 400 years after the deaths of St. John Fisher and St. Thomas More, G.K. Chesterton said that those two men are more important at this moment than at any moment since their deaths. But they're not quite so important as they will be in a hundred years. Well, almost 100 years has passed since Chesterton made that comment. And we are seeing just how important the need for sanctity, holiness, and personal integrity in public life, government administration, and church leadership is with regard to the overcoming many of the same problems we face today as they faced. Now, our guest tonight is well aware of those issues. He's a husband, he's the father of five, and a grandfather of 11, as well as a former federal prosecutor, and currently he is U.S. District Judge for the Western District of North Carolina. He's also the author of a book, a really fine book, John Fisher and Thomas More, Keeping Their Souls While Losing Their Heads. Please welcome our guest tonight, Judge Robert Conrad. Judge, welcome. Good to have you. you here with us. It's an honor. It's an honor. Well, thank you. And for me, too. The thing that I, I first I want to start off by, thank you for writing this book. Um, I've certainly been taken with uh, St. Thomas More since the movie about his life, with its limitation, but still beautifully shot movie. And it was just uh, was wonderfully acted and, and done, presented. Since then, you know, I've just been fascinated with him, but then later came to appreciate St. John Fisher as well. So I appreciate you doing this book. Um, now, St. Thomas More is the patron saint of lawyers, correct? Yes, yeah, statesmen so. and politicians. Yes, there you go. So I assume that's something to do with your choosing to write on this topic. So I, too, love the uh, play and movie A Man for All Seasons. and yeah. the, uh, um, the extraordinary depiction of Thomas More as someone who spoke to truth to power yeah. and uh, would not compromise his beliefs even to avoid execution. And uh, so I've had an adult lifetime admiration for Thomas More. And as I learned more about uh, John Fisher, his contemporary and friend, I realized that Fisher, too, was an extraordinarily accomplished uh, man of the 16th century who also stood uh, for truth uh, against power. Yes. And both of them stood as fairly solitary figures. St. John Fisher was a bishop, correct? He was, uh, as well as uh, Lord Chancellor of Cambridge University. Okay. So he was, uh, he was uh, considered the best preacher of his day. Mm -hmm. uh, you weren't around back then, so he didn't have as much That's, competition. I don't think that would have been the competition. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, yeah, he was a great preacher. 
um, very, very uh, learned, and, um, and a, the Bishop of Rochester, England. Uh, so that, that was uh, an important uh, set of roles. Well, Thomas More, tell us about him. So Thomas More uh, was the, one of the most brilliant lawyers of his day. And he, uh, early on in his life, he thought he might have a, a monastic vocation. And so while studying the law, he also lived with Cartesian monks and mm -hmm. tried to discern uh, what the will of God was for him in his life. And ultimately he decided that God was calling him uh, other than uh, to be a monk. Became a lawyer, became a, a great lawyer, ultimately the Lord Chancellor of all of England. And he also was married. He did, not only did he not become a monk, but he did uh, enter the vocation of matrimony. Wasn't always easy. He, he lost his first wife, is that right? So he was uh, married to Jane and she died of a virus mm -hmm. and uh, after uh, giving birth to four young children. And mm -hmm. he, he married Alice shortly after uh, Jane's death and, and lived with her until arrested by the king and confined to the tower. Mm -hmm. But one of the great things uh, in terms of uh, characteristics you might want to emulate as a 21st century uh, lawyer or business person was that he was a tremendously intentional father. He educated his children. He was a forerunner to the homeschool educational sure. effort. So he educated his uh, children at home and he was determined to give his uh, daughters as good an education as he gave to his sons. And uh, mm -hmm. so in that respect, he was a visionary for his time. And that even comes out in the movie where his daughter is, you know, fairly fine scholar uh, in her own right. Um, <laughs> a great scene where she speaks better Latin than King Henry, who also spoke. Latin was a, a common language for people to know because you could speak it in any country to which you went in Europe. So, um, and so she was quite well educated and number of areas. So Erasmus was the greatest Greek scholar of his yes. day. He was brought to Cambridge by John Fisher. And uh, Meg, Thomas More's daughter, would correct Erasmus's Greek. She was <laughs> quite the right. accomplished uh, yeah. woman of her day. She also published a book which was unheard of in yes. 16th century England for a woman to publish a book. Yeah. So More's uh, intentional parenting uh, is a significant component of the character of the man that, uh, that made me uh, want to write a book about him. There's a couple other things about him, again, that's in, in the movie as well, but uh, you, you bring it out. It, he was very intelligent, very Catholic and pious, but also filled with friendships and a lot of fun. He, he had good humor, uh, good friends, clear Catholic piety, uh, and religious practice, and, you know, saying no to himself and many things, not indulging himself, um, and serving God and his country. Uh, he combined all of those things. That makes, really sets him apart. Yes, again, Erasmus referred to him as a, a man born and made for friendship. Mm -hmm. And he really uh, fit that description uh, 
well. And one of the reasons for writing about both men together is how different they were in personality. Uh, By both men, you mean Erasmus? John Fisher and John Thomas Fisher, More. John Fisher, yes, that's what I thought. So Fisher is a very uh, scholarly priest, and Moore is the uh, gregarious uh, Lord Chancellor. Uh, very different men, but uh, yet called uh, by God to take uh, similar stands against the, uh, uh, the royal demand of the king to sign an oath against their conscience. And so... And I, I think it's important to note that this, uh, the, the eventual rupture with the king was not in the way that sometimes we see in our modern world that certain politicians dislike each other or dislike the party to which they belong, something like that. That was not the case here. Uh, John Fisher and uh, Thomas More worked with Henry uh, when, and they stood together in opposing Lutheranism and Calvinism, especially Lutheranism. Uh, they, they worked together on those issues of the faith, correct? Yes, yeah, so Fisher was uh, uh, a tutor to the young Henry VIII, uh, and, and Moore was a great friend of the king's. And yeah. that's what lends uh, uh, even greater tragedy to this story, is that uh, when ultimately both are executed, it's the king executing a good friend. And a teacher. And yeah. a, yes, and, and so uh, it's an extraordinary thing that that the concept of friendship to Fisher and Moore uh, was more than uh, getting together and having a good time. They, they saw other people in an eternal perspective. And so, yeah. so Moore would look at the king as a, a friend here on earth, but a, uh, a future companion in heaven. Mm -hmm. And so this eternal perspective is an interesting thing. In fact, one of the quotes that you have from St. John Fisher is that he he prayed for the king, even when he was in prison. Uh, Christian people, I am come hither to die for the faith of Christ's holy church. I do desire you all to help and assist me with your prayers, and at the very point and instant of death stroke, I may in that very moment stand steadfast without fainting in any one point of the Catholic faith, free from any fear. And I beseech Almighty God of His infinite goodness to save the King and His realm, and that it may please Him to hold His holy hand over it and send the King good counsel. That as He's about to be executed by the King, He's praying for the King to have good counsel and to have fidelity to uh, the teaching that John Fisher had once given him. It's remarkable. And uh, Moore was uh, of a similar vein. You know, the famous uh, line that Thomas Moore says at the point of death is that I die the king's good servant and God's first. Yes. And I think that was a remarkable message for us 500 years later. But also in the, uh, in the day, uh, what Moore was doing was reminding the king of the agreement that they had when the king made Thomas More Lord Chancellor. Lord Chancellor, or uh, Thomas More was nervous about taking that assignment because he knew that the king 
and he disagreed as to the king's great matter. But and the, the great matter was, we didn't really discuss that. What was the great issue that divided this teacher from his former student and a friend from his friend the king? What set them at odds? So the great matter was that when King Henry VIII became king of England, one of the first things he did was he married his, uh, his deceased uh, older brother's wife, Catherine of Aragon. And in doing that, he uh, obtained a, uh, a uh, decree from the pope removing any impediment to the marriage, to the legitimacy of the marriage because of the prior uh, marriage of Catherine to Henry's brother. And, so, and, and also, she apparently had not consummated that marriage with Arthur, uh, Henry's older brother. So Catherine and Arthur were betrothed to each other when they were two and three years old, respectively, mm -hmm. and then married as young teenagers. And Catherine mm -hmm. would maintain throughout her life that when Arthur died five, year, uh, five months after the wedding, that the, uh, the marriage had never been consummated. Okay. And so fast forward, uh, uh, Henry marries Catherine when he becomes king, and uh, they, Catherine bears him several children, but sadly they uh, all die at, at, at birth, uh, except for one daughter, uh, Mary. And so as time goes by, uh, Henry VIII is very concerned about having a male heir uh, to succeed him, and he also has fallen in love with one of the maids of Catherine, Anne Boleyn. And so his great matter uh, develops as a desire to end his first marriage to Catherine so that he could marry Anne Boleyn and uh, hopefully foster a male child. And one of the issues was that his father, Henry VII, was part of a resolution of the War of the Roses. That war, it was a civil war in England over who should be king when the prior king had no sons. He was trying to prevent another such civil war. So that's understandable that he doesn't want war. Right. But he became desperate um, and, uh, for a son and caused other problems for his kingdom. And so what he tells uh, Thomas More when he names him Lord Chancellor of England is, as to my great matter, uh, look first to God and after God to me. And it's on that understanding that uh, Thomas More accepts the position of Lord Chancellor. And so when years go by and he's now been uh, uh, subject to execution, when he says, I die the king's good servant and God's first, He's saying to, he's reminding the king of the original understanding that they had. And he's indicating uh, the unity of his life, that he led his life in a very faithful way as a man of integrity, uh, keeping his word uh, to the king. And so it's a message to King Henry VIII that would have been received by the king. But it's also a wonderful message uh, for uh, 21st century Americans. One of the points that you make in the book, and it helped highlight something um, I had in the back of my mind after watching the movie Man for All Seasons a number of times. I've, I've seen, seen it repeatedly and seen the play. And 
the issue that you bring out that the playwright does is emphasize that Thomas More says, it is I making this decision. And it, Bolt, Robert Bolt, the author of the play, makes the issue one of personal integrity, which is important in itself. But Thomas More was much more concerned with the objective good and truth of the Catholic faith. And you can't compromise, not because it's my decision, but because I must conform to the truth. That, I think, is a very important point in your book about both St. John Fisher and St. Thomas More. So Thomas More, in a letter to his family from prison, uh, mentions the word conscience 40 times in one letter. And so uh, part of what the book grapples with is what, what did he mean by the term conscience? And as you indicated, uh, the uh, play sort of focuses on, 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 on the I, the subjective individual, the self-assertion of, mm -hmm. of conscience. And, as I dug into the lives of both Fisher and Moore, uh, it seemed to me that something different was going on and that yeah. they, were, they were focusing more on not I believe, but that I believe. And so what did they believe in? And they weren't creating something to assert. They were attempting to discover something uh, to rely upon. And each man in dealing with this crisis uh, looked to the Bible, looked to the church fathers, tried to determine what God's truth was. Not what my truth is, not what the king's truth is, but God's truth. You, uh, again, another one of the great quotes from St. Thomas More is, comfort in tribulation can be secured only on the sure ground of faith holding as true the words of Scripture and the teaching of the Catholic Church. That it's about the truth in itself. And our culture has a tremendous difficulty with that because we are very unsure that truth exists, or if it does exist, we're unsure that we can discover it. And so we become relativistic. Everybody has their own truth. You just have to have your own integrity uh, with your own truth. But that wasn't their concern. Right. Their concern was, no, this, as you said, this is what God has revealed. And if God has revealed it, it's true, and I must conform to that truth. So it's not an assertion of a right, but it's the discovery of a duty. And, mm -hmm. and so uh, Moore and Fisher are concerned not with their self-autonomy, uh, not self-confidence, but Christ-confidence. And once they obtained, they studied this matter for years before they took any public position at all. They consulted friends, they prayed. Mm -hmm. And it was only after that effort at discovering the truth and then applying it to the crisis uh, that they took the stands that they did. And so Moore would say, uh, because of that effort at learning the truth, that uh, there was such clarity of conscience 
that the field was won. And what he meant by that was that he had reached a point where he knew that the things of God were more important than the things of earth. And St. John Fisher had the same mentality. Uh, again, another one of your quotes uh, from St. John Fisher, a good man is not a perfect man. A good man is an honest man, faithful and unhesitatingly responsive to the voice of God in his life. This is different from the way many modern people, including many contemporary Catholics, who said, well, I follow my conscience. I form it myself. I make what my conscience is, then I'll follow that. And usually that means they're going to go along with the current culture on various moral issues. Whereas St. John Paul II, St. Thomas More, St. John Fisher, these men saw, no, God is the one who puts truth in your conscience. His law is in your conscience. And it's not that you have to make it up and then stay faithful to it. It's finding what it is and conforming. So I think it's a discovery process, mm -hmm. not a creative process. Mm -hmm. And so John Henry Newman would say that conscience is that divine light within. And so it's a, it's a wrestling uh, uh, with our fallible understanding of things. It's a wrestling to ascertain what is the truth of God. And, and once that's ascertained and once the commitment is made to live a life consistent with that conscience, there's freedom. Freedom even when you're locked up in a tower. Freedom even when you're at the point of execution. Now, this played out in a variety of crises for these two men, you know, that they knew that this is what God had revealed. And one of the first steps was St. John Fisher was at the Legantine, Legantine uh, trial uh, of, uh, concerning whether or not there was validity in the marriage of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Talk a little bit about that. So Fisher was actually the first of the two men to challenge the king, and he did it, he did it in a most extraordinary context. As you said, in 1529, there was a legatine hearing where two cardinals of the Catholic Church were, were uh, tasked with developing the facts and making a recommendation to the Pope as to the legitimacy of mm -hmm. Henry's marriage. And so the king was there, the queen was invited, and all the nobles of the realm were gathered in Blackfriars Hall, just in a beautiful, impressive, stately room. And the, uh, the queen, instead of taking her seat at the, at the hearing, when called into court, went over to the king, knelt down in front of him, and begged him to give her justice, to recognize her role as a, as a wife, to recognize that she had given up her friends and made his friends hers, and that she had borne his children and lived faithfully for him. And when she was done with all of that, she committed her cause to God and left. She just left the hearing room. Uh, 
And, and just so, so folks understand too, prior to that, you know, th this crisis of not having a son, they'd had a fairly happy marriage. They'd gotten along fairly well. For the most part, yes. Yeah. Henry uh, had eyes for other women and that would be his downfall. Yes. Uh, we know that he had six wives and that... Uh, and, and he had a few other women as well. Uh, but your essential point is, is true that uh, but for the failure of a male heir and but for the wandering eye, um, this marriage uh, was, those are big buts, but uh, largely healthy. But once she left the hearing room, Henry tried to regain control and he, uh, he asserted to all the nobles and all the bishops that every bishop in the realm agreed with him on his theological position. John Fisher happened to be uh, Catherine's counselor at that hearing. And when the king uh, made the assertion that every bishop agreed with him, Fisher responded in a loud voice, no, sir, not I. You have not my consent thereto. Mm -hmm. And when he said that, he was a marked man. Um, he had opposed the king. And then the king looked to the archbishop and, and shook a handful of affidavits and said, don't I have the signature of every bishop in the realm? And the archbishop said, you do. And Fisher said, no, I never signed a document for it was much against my conscience. The other thing too that got him in trouble in that trial is that he said, even St. John the Baptist, who belonged to the old covenant, defended the truth of marriage. And unfortunately for him, Anne Boleyn fully understood that that made Henry like Herod, but Anne Boleyn like the illegitimate wife Herodias. And she wanted to make sure that St. John Fisher would lose his head like St. John the Baptist did. And so when, when Fisher said, no, sir, not I, you have not my consent there too, that enraged the king. Yeah. But when he compared the king to John or to Herod and said that he was in the position of John the Baptist, it enraged him even more. Yep. And so when ultimately John Fisher was executed, it was very important to the king to do it quickly because the feast of St. John the Baptist was coming up on yes. June 24th. Yep. And so he had John Fisher executed on June 22nd. And to do that, he had to change the form of execution from being drawn and quartered to simple beheading. And when he did that and did it on June 22nd, uh, it made the parallels to John the Baptist even more even stunning. Even more clear. Yeah. We have to take a little break. We want to come back and get some of your comments and your questions. So please stay with us.
right, welcome back. We are discussing a book called John Fisher and Thomas More, Keeping Their Souls While Losing Their Heads. The author is Robert J. Conrad, Jr., and you can get it at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 2912. And it's really well worth getting this and taking a look at this book uh, as a way to gain some perspective on our own times and our own living out of authentic Catholicism in our world. And we have a caller online. Hello, Mike. Yes, uh, Father Mitch. Uh, you're calling from Pennsylvania? Yes, I am, Father Mitch. Can you hear me? Just fine, just fine. What's your question? Yes, I have a question for Judge Conrad, Father Mitch. Sure. Um, I was uh, speaking to an English Catholic one time about the heroics of St. Thomas More, and this person responded that he did nothing more than any other martyred English Catholics at that time which I thought was an astounding response. I say this looking at what Thomas More was willing to sacrifice for martyrdom, you know, an exalted position in society, family, and wealth. I'm curious what you have to say there. And additionally, I learned recently St. Thomas More wrote a rebuttal to John Wycliffe about Wycliffe boasting about writing the, or translating the Bible into English and St. Thomas More responded that this is not unique in some impressive literary track, saying that the church at the time was translating the Bible into various languages. So, in essence, I think Thomas More should be remembered for his authorship. Okay, so um, do you have any response to that? So, with respect to both Thomas More and John uh, Fisher, uh, they gave up everything. Each of them was uh, the most credentialed, accomplished person in their respective fields. Moore rose to the position of Lord Chancellor. Fisher uh, was, was Chancellor for Life of Cambridge University, a bishop, a tutor of the royal family. Uh, extraordinarily accomplished uh, people. And so, uh, their, will, their hard work and talent took them to the pinnacle of their professions, um, which I think in and of itself is a great lesson uh, for young people to, mm -hmm. to recognize the, the, the degree of study, uh, work, and prayer that, that is required to be good at something. But once they accomplished everything that somebody in their field would uh, ever hoped to accomplish, they were willing to give it up completely mm -hmm. to follow the truth, to follow uh, God. And that's a remarkable thing. That sets them apart in ways that uh, are worthy of emulation. And uh, I can comment on this, the second point about Wycliffe's translation. Um, Wycliffe had done a translation in the 14th century uh, of the Bible into English. And St. Thomas More was absolutely correct uh, because every, you'll still hear some people say that the Catholic Church was against having the Bible in modern languages. 
only someone who doesn't know about translations can say that because be, you know, the printing press came out in uh, around 1455 or so. First book off the press was the Bible in Latin. But from 1455 until 1520, there were 125 translations of the Bible in modern languages, Italian, Spanish, French, German, Polish, English, all these have been translated in all these different European languages. So the church was not opposed. That's just simply untrue. And Thomas More was 100% correct on those translations being done. You should write a book about that. No, it's been done. Now does it do that? Let's now go over to Martin, who is also in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Martin, what can we do for you tonight? How are you doing, Father Mitch? Your Honor, um, I just wanted to say, um, and the Marianists taught me way back when, that the people that we remember after their age are the people who stand out from their age. And both uh, Moore and Fisher stood against the totalitarianism of their age, where it's just like the totalitarianism now, where they seek to have everybody voice lies, which everybody knows are lies, but which are presented as truth. So they stood against that. They're a model for us today to stand against uh, that kind of uh, behavior. And the saints today will be remembered 500 years from now. So that, that was just a comment I had. And, Your Honor, it's a great book that you put out. I mean, it's, a, it's definitely needed. I'm a member of the Thomas More Society and the Chesterton Society. So the two of them came right together here in the show, and I had to call it. So ad majorium de gloria. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, appreciate that, Martin. One of the points that he makes and that you made in your book, Henry VIII uh, became totalitarian in many ways. I mean, uh, for, talk a little bit about how he insisted on certain speech, that speech issues became capital crimes. You'd be killed for saying the wrong things. So one of the tragedies of this story is, is the uh, veering of the king from a position of, uh, of faith. He was actually described as the defender of the faith because of his religious writings in his uh, yeah. early days as a king. Yeah, his, his book, um, co Contradicting Luther on the Seven Sacraments, uh, it's, it really is well done. I've read it and it's quite well done. And many say he had a lot of help from Thomas More. Yes. <laughs> But, uh, but when he started pursuing his great matter and insisting on uh, the divorce and the remarriage, he also insisted that others go along uh, with him. And so one of the, the acts of parliament that was passed was the act of succession, which uh, indicated that the, the heirs to the kingdom would come through the relationship of Henry with Anne Boleyn, not Catherine of Aragon. Well, both Fisher and Moore were willing to sign an oath uh, to the succession. Um, Fisher insisted on a phrase, uh, so long as the God, law of God permits. Uh, but uh, that act was followed by a requirement of signing an oath that had certain facts asserted concerning the illegi illegitimacy 
of the first marriage, the uh, lack of authority of the Pope to weigh in on it. And so uh, neither man could sign that oath. Mm-hmm. Moore's solution was to remain silent. Um, and he believed that silence in the law uh, would protect him. And uh, Fisher inserted the phrase, so long as the law of God permits. Um, and so that wasn't enough for Henry. He wanted their, uh, their compliance. He wanted their acquiescence uh, to his view. And so uh, he urged Parliament to pass a second act called the Act of Treason, which made it unlawful to maliciously speak against any of the king's titles, including his new title of Supreme Head of the Church of England. And um, the element of malice was a very important part of that statute. Um, And both men were prosecuted for speaking against the king's title. Uh, And both men were convicted at trial based upon the testimony of uh, Richard Rich, uh, who Moore would indicate in his trial after hearing the testimony of Rich, who said that Moore had told him that Parliament did not have the authority to make Henry head of the church. Uh, Moore said to Rich, I am sorrier for your perjury than my own peril. And so um, this was a revolutionary thing. And this guy, Richard Rich, was himself pretty much of a a scumbag. He's a bad guy in this story. Uh, He went to Fisher's cell and told him that the king had granted him immunity for his advice on whether he was doing the right thing. And once the priest, Bishop Fisher, heard that, he he told uh, Rich that the king was imperiling his soul by his course of conduct. Mm-hmm. Again, because the king had asked for it and had granted him immunity. And so it was that testimony by Rich that led to Fisher's execution. Yep. And then with Moore, he just made it up. Yep. And both men were convicted on the perjury uh, of this wicked fellow. But here's one of the other things, uh, and I think the, the parallels to today, where very often, if you don't have correct thinking on various topics, you get canceled. And can- cancellation of, of ideas and exchange of thoughts and, you know, just trying to argue through concerns is oftentimes as forbidden by some parts of our society, especially on the left right now. The right has done it in the past, but the, the left is doing it right now for the most part. And that cancellation is just as dictatorial and totalitarian as Henry VIII. They just use the media to cancel instead of a sword. So Moore would say at one point that he had formed his conscience to such a point that it was clear what was right and what was wrong. And as a result, he said, although I can suffer pain, I cannot suffer harm. For a man may lose his head and have no harm. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful line. Yeah. And one of the reflections that comes out of uh, this book is that we're probably not going to be required to lose our head Uh, for anything that we believe or say. Uh, But each of us will suffer some harm for following the truth against 
the assertions of culture. And Next, the question is, mm -hmm. are we going to be willing to suffer harm? And that can be that range from losing jobs, losing friends, and a variety of other issues that come up. So we just have to be alert to that. And that's why these men are such great models for our day. Absolutely. We have a question from John in New York. John, what can we do for you this evening? Good evening, Father. It's been a long time since I said hello to you. Now, my question is on the conversation you have with uh, Judge there. What is the Church of England's position today on Thomas More and Fisher? If you will know, you may not know, but what does the Church of England say about Thomas More and Fisher today? I'm sure they don't recognize them as saints, but what is their position? Do you think it was justified the way they were uh, tried and, and executed? Or what's their position? Would you know Thank that? you. Good question. So what does the Church of England so, today say about Thomas More? I've got a great answer to that, because in the Catholic Church, uh, we recognize uh, John Fisher and, and Thomas More on June 22nd. Uh, that's their feast day in the Catholic Church, and it's the anniversary of the execution of John Fisher. In the Anglican Church, they are also recognized, uh, but it's on July 6th, which is the anniversary of Thomas More's uh, beheading. So I find it uh, uh, very uh, telling that the Church of Henry VIII recognizes the sanctity and integrity of these two men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that is an interesting point. Um, they still have today the Queen of England as the head of the Church, but um, they, at least they recognize the, these men's integrity. Um, and this, so that's just a fairly positive uh, attitude towards the two of them. Yes. Yeah, which would sound like the kind of thing that could have gotten them beheaded <laughs> back in the time of Henry. Yeah. Now, there's one of the other quotes that you have, and it's related to this topic of their integrity. From St. Thomas More says, don't worry about me no matter what happens in this world. Nothing can happen to me that God doesn't want, and all that he wants, no matter how bad it may appear to us, is really for the best. This is, um, you know, not easily palatable in the modern world where folks would like just everybody to get along. I think throughout history people would like just to get along, but that's not the case. And so he says not to worry about what happens. One of the characteristics of both men is their present sense uh, understanding of eternal life. They, they believe that what they did, said, and thought here on earth affected uh, where they would ultimately spend eternity. And so eternity was such a, uh, eternal life yeah. was such a real uh, thing to them that it affected what they did. They thought about these issues in terms of where they would spend eternal life, where King Henry VIII would be in eternal life, and everybody else around them. That was their concern. It was, and uh, because they had this eternal perspective, they could look at, at Henry VIII, 
They could look at their executioner. They could look at the judges to their condemnation and see uh, uh, fellow friends in heaven. They, uh, they, they would say to each of those uh, people, uh, although you're judges to my condemnation here, someday we will, be, we will live merrily together in heaven. Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, well, that line in his trial that Thomas makes, St. Thomas More, uh, pray for me as I will for thee, that we may merrily meet in heaven. That, that, that's his goal. Yes. But he also, his integrity on the other side, and it comes out even in the movie uh, about Thomas More, Man for All Seasons, that to go contrary to the truth of God imperils your soul. You can go to hell for believing the falsehood, especially if you know that it's false. If you know that something is untrue and you hold it, knowing that it's not true, you can be in hell for that. That's a very important element here. So his daughter who loved him to death and hated the fact that the family was separated from their father in a prison cell, just said to him, Dad, can't you just sign the oath and believe in your heart something else? Doesn't God just uh, care about uh, the belief in the, in the heart? And Moore's response uh, is, to, is to, to ask her, what happens if you cup your hands and put water in your hands? What happens when you let your hands uh, come apart? Mm-hmm. And then he analogized that to his own situation. If I were to sign an oath contrary to what I believed, I should never hope to find myself again. And, and, and that, Bolt brings that into the movie. And, uh, but we, we do have uh, Margaret's uh, diaries, her own reflections and mem- uh, remembrances. So that's how we know a lot of these things about him. Yes, and so he, uh, he wrote a number of, Thomas More wrote a number of letters to his family from the tower cell, and, and some of them were encouragements to them to, to pray and to, to survive this ordeal, and, and some of them were explanations for what he was doing. But much of his writing, I think, was geared towards not only his family, but his times, and ultimately our time, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, um, again, well worth examining because a lot of folks would like us to compromise our Catholic faith. We see a number of public figures in politics, the media, and elsewhere compromising our Catholic faith. And sometimes, like the bishops around John Fisher, some of them tell us to just don't rock the boat. This is not right, and I would urge you to read this book, which is called John Fisher and Thomas More, Keeping Their Souls While Losing Their Heads, by our guest tonight, Robert Conrad, Jr. Again, you can get it at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 2912. And I urge you to read as much as you can about these two great saints. Thank you, Judge Conrad, for being with us, and may the Lord bless you and bless all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And 
we can bring you Judge Conrad and all the other guests that we bring you only because this network is brought to you by you. Our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to have this brought by you instead of by advertisers. So we ask you then to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. Thank you, and God bless.